Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, so let's start this thing up. I'm Amber. I'm with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta, and we're going to be running these networking nights with Greener Pastures Ranching every second Wednesday throughout the winter. The link is going to remain the same. So if you've registered once, you don't need to re-register. You'll get a reminder email the day before the event. Sessions are being recorded and they'll be put up on our podcast, which can be found on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts by searching Gateway Research Organization. Tonight, we have Ula Thompson as our guest, and we're super excited because Ula is a mentor to a lot of different people within the province, and I'm sure outside of Alberta as well. And yeah, I'll let Stephen and Ula kind of go into some more introductions there. That is all the intro stuff that we have. If you don't want to be on our email list anymore for some reason, please feel free to eat to let me know either through a text message or through email, and I can take you off my list, even though it will break my heart. So there's my little bit of a guilt trip in there for you. So yes, that being said, Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about Greener Pastures Ranching and introduce Ula? All right, I can do that. Super excited about having Ula here today. She's one of my uh, mentors from way back in the 90s, she said here today. We started this uh uh, last year in in because COVID hit and we weren't, weren't getting the conferences and the networking was was missing. I just didn't know what to do with without being able to go out and network and learn from other producers. So uh, uh, Greener Pastures Ranching kind of sponsors this. We just do this every well every second week right now. We just bring in a, a different speaker and a different topic every week and just it's a Q and A. So I met Ula back in the day of the Alberta Forage Council. Um, I actually met her son first. And then I met her through some tours and some, I remember going to your farm, Ula, and I don't know if you remember this, but I'm, I might have to relieve myself of some guilt here because I remember stealing some of the seeds out of your bird's foot trefoil plants and putting them in my pocket. <laughs> I think I made a big deal out of it there. So I don't, I don't think it was a secret, but um, I remember too in your, your farm and that, that bird's foot trefoil field was amazing. I, I still remember it. So I'm very happy to, uh, to have Ula as a mentor. I think I told you this last time, Ula, I was at the bee convention this winter. They asked me to be a, to help host a panel. So I don't know much about bees, but I was sitting at the, at the lunch table with a group of bee producers from the peace country. He started telling, I started telling him about this, you know, regenerative agriculture, this thing that we're doing. And he goes, yeah, I remember that. There was a lady that won an award up in the peace country and she was just a, a firecracker. <laughs> and I can't remember her name. I said, Ula Thompson. He said, yeah, that's her. <laughs> so that was a long time ago, but he remembered you because, uh, yeah. Uh, so small world, we, we run, in, run into people that know everybody in our, in our little world. So really excited about uh, having Ula here today. Um, the, the title of our evening is Legacies Left on the Land. Very interested in that, Ula. Do you want to kind of give you a little bit of a rundown about yourself and then what's, what's the purpose behind your, the, the topic tonight? Thank you very much, Steve. I remember up in the Peace River country, in fact, I have a few quotes from 1996 when we had a, a women conference up there. But I'm so enthused about all you young people that you're doing regenerative farming. And also that I see so many like Brissette and Amber and, and Karen and all you guys that the girls is involved now. I have tried in my youth to be 
the only girl in every agriculture meeting you would come to. And I probably just like to be different, and I don't mind. Anyway, I, I knew already when I was 11 years old that I wanted to farm. And luckily, I grew up on a farm. And luckily, I had parents that let me and my both my brothers and my sisters to do what we wanted to do. Except it was it was very important that we did well in what we chose. So I had no. It was a mixed farm right after the war. Everything was horses. I think my dad had uh, there was uh, seventy five hectares of land, which is kind of a upper middle size farm in Denmark. And uh, I think we must have had six teams of horses means you have six hired helps as a room and board and you had uh, girls in the kitchen and and to clean and do all that as well so huge household I loved to always be with my dad so he was more like the gen- first of all he had terrible asthma so he was not a strong man and I was always tucking along everywhere, checking fences with him, being up early, just to see what was going on at all times. I graduated before I was 16 years old, and then I became a student farmer, uh, first for my dad. And of course, my mother insisted that I had at least half a year in the household as a maid, so you knew how to slaughter, how to run a farm household, of course. What we did in Denmark, and I don't, I think it's still, but of course, there's not as much labor in in farming, but I worked for about eight different farms. We were always hired six months at a time and got paid after six months. It was looked a little bit funny if you had to draw some money out before your six months was up. So you learn money management early on. So I worked on different farms. I always, I was, it was not very common that women was farming. So I had to choose ahead of time and go and ask permission if I could be a student farmer. For So I was on a, a 100 cow dairy farm. I was in an 80 sow, uh, purebred sow, a sugar beet research farm. And so on, and then I ended up with the agricultural school management because I saw, of course, I realized I probably couldn't load sugar beets eight hours a day <laughs> the rest of my life. So I realized that I wanted to be in the management. And I also managed to be an exchange student on, in Holland. I would encourage anybody of you, go to a different country where they don't speak your language, like Amber, where you're talking about Spanish. You will learn yourself to know the first months you don't even have a clue what they talk. They just tell, go and milk the cows. <laughs> you know, you can do everything. And if you work 14-hour days, you don't have to speak a lot anyway. <laughs> Then I also, the, the last little son, I, after agriculture school, I came home as my dad's manager. And by then, there was only a couple of the married guys that lived in the houses left. There was hardly any, we had, you know, there was hardly any more young because now we, we could get fuel for our tractors again because that was a short thing. Uh, it wasn't that you didn't have a tractor, but you had no fuel. 
and there you try to manage when you get one of the guys is somebody that knew you from you were a baby <laughs> and they don't want to do what you tell them to do <laughs> anyway and then my dad let me go for um, one of my friends was very involved with the young farmers and he um, spearheaded the IAEA and that was an agricultural exchange to North America, mostly Canada. And I was on the first group in 1965. I, he said, you could go four months and then you come home and take over that farm. I'm sick and tired. He was a horseman, not a man that liked machinery. And then I met my future husband that summer here in Canada. So I had never been home since except for holidays. And that is part of legacy, I think, that my parents never sent me on a guilt trip. They said, if you're happy, be happy. And But I must say, they were wondering a little because uh, my husband was still studying at the time. He became a teacher and uh, he was a Dutch immigrant. And we lived in a basement in Edmonton as long as he was a student and I was uh, the breadwinner. In Denmark, if you live in a basement, that's where the rats and the, <laughs> the moisture and the funky is. And they were not happy until they came and visited us and saw the country we lived in. And then they were a lot happier. And also later they visit when we owned a farm. So that really cleaned that up. But it is so important, I think, both with the land, that the land is just one little plot you are maybe in charge of for that tiny little bit of millenniums that your lifespan is. And my dad was fine. As soon as he knew I didn't come back, he rented out to a neighbor right away. No more farming for him, but he never blamed me. In agricultural school, in the school I attended, there never had girls before. So we were actually two girls there. And they were watching very much if that was possible to teach men and women together in agricultural school. And we must have behaved because they have had girls ever since in that particular agricultural school. I'm very proud of that. And being kind of a maybe... A, bit of a, a stuck-in-the-mud thing or a pioneer. I don't know what you would call it. I guess I've enjoyed to be different. And it's uh, in 1972 now. So I lived in Canada for about seven years. We had two children, and we owned a quarter section close to Pinoka. And there was, of course, you remember, we had DAs that would put on seminars in the wintertime. I would go to one of them, and Jim was fine with that. I mean, we were sharing. My lucky thing was that as long as I, I was working in the home economics and the uh, university farm in uh, Edmonton and was a lab technician up there because I knew metric, that's huge when you come to a country there only no ounces. <laughs> so therefore, it was always whoever came first home make the supper. So we were pretty even in what we did. 
And then in 1972, I decided, well, why don't I go down and listen to all the new stuff we're supposed to learn? You know, one, you know these courses we have where they met once a week for eight weeks in the wintertime or something. And lo and behold, of course, I was the only woman there. And I learned very quickly that I had to come late because nobody would sit at a table with me. They all knew who I was. But, you know, you could, just couldn't do that in Alberta. And that it was my thing about why so many women was working. Like the Dutch women, they did a lot of the farm work, haying and milking and everything, but they were never acknowledged for it. They were always going to put that apron on and pretend they had been in the house all day. Anyway, that's where we started. And I was very happy that the following year I enticed a few of my farm women friends to come along, especially when it came to uh, the bookkeeping and taxes and all that. I mean, they were doing it anyway. Why get it secondhand through their husband? They probably didn't know what they were doing anyway. <laughs> So here's a direct quote from the Women's Conference in, in 1996. So here, what I was doing in the early 90s after taking a few holistic courses, I went uh, into straight grass farming in a mainly crop area. And all my neighbors, I was right down, my land was right down to Highway 53. And all my neighbors was, of course, watching what was going on because you're not supposed to graze number two soil. That's cropland. And yet, I had calculated my return was far better than the cropland, not nearly as risky in, uh, because the hail, I was in a hail area. I have had up to, not every year, but I've had up to $95 an acre in income, and that was a fair income for me in the 90s. And there was, of course, much, much less financial risk and no, no real investment in machinery and, and the like. So I, for me, and then I could walk everywhere, I could handle the cattle. But how do I get into that? It's because I had mentors and somebody that gave me a leg up to ride that horse. Like in the early, um, so that has been in the early, that has been in 1990. Don Halliday, I consulted with him. He were, they were one of the ones that had taken the holistic course with me. And these whole things, see, I was used to in Denmark where we, ro we rotated our grass for the dairy cattle, and the horses would come and eat at night where the dairy had been. And we had already electric fences, so you didn't have to convince me about these kind of things. But I hadn't understood the rest versus the grazing period. So I was grazing these many little pastures I had. About every two weeks I made a rotation. Of course, you're out of grass by 1st of August, just like all the the farmers said do the the straight grazing, you know, in one. So Don sat down with me and we spent a whole day and he made a nice grazing plan and get that. And then I got that together. And then he also, that uh, 
the window, he got me in contact with Marshall uh, Copperthorne from uh, Cochrane. He's a rancher down there, and he had 200 heifers and needed a place to go for the summer because uh, he had a drought and he needed that exit. If he could get them out of the way, he would have enough feed. And I remember Marshall coming up probably in March, and I had labored, and I had a perfect grazing plan. Although I, uh, my training was such that I could make a, a feeding plan, but it would always be feed sample and so much hay and so much in uh, silage and so much. But how much, how, how big an area of grass to cow eat or heifer? I just didn't have that concept. So I thought with my 500 acres there, 200 heifer would probably eat it bare during the summer. That was my concept. But anyway, I set it all up, my old hay fields. Marshall just took one look at my nice grazing plant and said, I wish you'd come down and make a grazing plant for me. So that was a good hurdle. But I said, 200 heifers, they're used to cobras. I'm a farmer. I've never handled much more than maybe my own cows and some dairy cattle and stuff. Oh, he said, if you can't handle it, I'll send two cowboys up. You load them on a truck and take them right home and you're done. And that was exactly what I need. Somebody that I had total trust in that we will do it. And of course, I had tons of grass. I bailed 150 big round bales that summer. I never had a summer as busy as that. And I kept the cattle right to in October because I found soon out that cattle actually come when you call them as long as you feed them. But I think that is what is so hard, even when you come from farm background, but you you just haven't had that experience of a huge big herd and they still follow you. So that is where I feel it's so important that we have we mentor other people, we teach, and that is where I also think it's so ridiculous with the old farmers. There was that secrecy. If you were seeding it this way or that way, they would never tell. I'm thinking about some of the old fellows from church. There was no way they were going to tell somebody like me their secret, how to make a good seed bed and stuff. And that is where... It's so encouraging that with holistic management and and with regenerative farming, we are not afraid of sharing. And I have had tons of tours, like Steve is talking about, he have been probably on my land. The only mistake I did was, of course, I didn't do like Bud Williams. I said, $20 each, so I won't say anything. But <laughs> I just thought it was much more important that we just shared, and I was not afraid of sharing the failures, the things that didn't work, because of course there are lots of things that don't work or that could be done different. And like like Steve was talking about my birch fruit trefoil, there was ten acres on an old hayfield, and I and I see this straight birch fruit trefoil, and it looked good. My only mistake was I didn't have a combine to actually let it grow to seed. So I grazed it every year, and it only took three years, and there were no birds for tree for it because it comes back because of it seeds itself. So in all my um, 
uh, you know, fenced off little uh, shelter belts and stuff. There's still birch food tree foil out there. But that particular land, if it grazed out in three years, you need to let it grow to seed to make it, uh, make it work. The A-Time course, the holistic management course, and of course, Brusette, know, I know Don very well. One of the best courses, it was more because the setup, we, I had always very wonderful, knowledgeable teachers. They're very good. We had in 1994, Noel McNaughton, he um, set up a course where we, I think we met uh, two days a week or at least one, no, a month, or maybe just one day a month. I can't remember anymore. And uh, so we always had homework and had time to think about and make a grazing plan or make a financial plan or, you know, all these homeworks you do. And there we learned a ton of stuff. But I think the biggest thing was we trusted each other and we had somebody to share with, with our crazy ideas. Somebody would say, Yum, have you thought about this? Could it be done like that? I'm doing something else. We, we always had that feedback. And also it gave me, at that time I was already in my 50s and my um, three of my children was married. And you were, I became a grandma, and you'll never become a grandma before you won. <laughs> and uh, it's very nice to have a group to share, especially when you live alone, uh, to share ideas, but also share some of the hurts and the, the things that happen when you have uh, people around you. And so that is what I appreciate so very, very much with the holistic management that my whole training. I was taught how to how to produce, how to make healthier animals, how to manage the money. I learned that in agriculture school, how to always take care of that weather, how to take risks, all these things. But the people was never mentioned. And that is so, so important, I think. Here's from 1991, it said, but it's that's a, one of my first attempts. And it pretty much stood since my attempt to make a holistic management goals. Here, I'll start off. So here's the people, the production, and how you are going to make the living out of that production. So I, be, I value a high degree of integrity. I want to live in an honest, caring, just community with freedom of speech and where people can express their creativity and diversity. I want to keep harmony in my family with good communication and strong, fulfilling relationships. I treasure to have many good friends. I want to lead a productive, happy, healthy life with enough clean water, clean air, and adequate shelter situated in a healthy, aesthetical, pleasing environment. I want to be free of debts, spend less than I earn, invest wisely, and give freely of my abundance. I, I want rewarding work I like doing. Yet, I want a few hours of free time every day, as well as several short holidays a year. I value order on my farm and in the house, 
and but not to the so I want order in my farm and order in my house, but not to the point of obsession. You can see I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I will never stop learning new exciting things, and I value an optimistic outlook. And my forms of production will be profit from forage, product conversion through livestock, profit from marketing, profit from other pursuits that does not interfere with my values but complement who I am. And I want time to acquire new knowledge. And then I go into the future landscape of that tiny little 500 acres that I owned. And I can see that this is written 31 years ago. And yet, yeah, when you write your values down, they don't change a whole lot. doesn't matter what age you are. I think that is very important. I think a few of them that this whole thing about being death-free, of course, that is such a pipe dream when you're young, and now you sit in the other end and wonder what you should do with it. But I do want to share my abundance. And that's not just money, but it's also knowledge and what you do. Yeah, people can ask me later if they want to know more. These are some of the things, but about the production on the land where learned it from. I was very involved with the Grey Wooded Force Association. I guess I was chairman of it a few years as well. But Jim Bauer was a manager at that time. And uh, we decided that Don Halliday and I, they would come out because we were all puzzled about this whole thing about uh, how do we know because it's not easy to take uh, samples like you do in a silent spit. Just jam the spear in and you have a sample. And therefore, Jim would come out once a month and he would look where the, where the yearlings were and then he would just take a sample of grass in the obvious field they were going to. And that first year was also 1996. And I have the graph right here. What I want to explain is that in 1996, the first sample was taken uh, June 20th. And there was uh, the energy was 30 and the protein was 17.5. The next sample was taken July 22nd and the protein had jumped up to 25 and the TDN had uh, gone down. This is a megacalorie per kilo. And that had gone down a little bit. And then in August, of course, the protein had fallen again to 15. And uh, uh, the energy has gone up because we have a little bit more mature grass. I know why now, but I mean, and then in the end, it ends up with about 16% protein and 25% megacalorie per kilo. So the following year, 1997, I saw now there's something I learned from that when I saw these graphs. And I learned to read the graphs. So there we start out with almost the same in June 10th instead of June 20th, but basically when he got out the first sample. And there was 16% protein and 27, which is 70 TDN. And then Next time, it was 14% protein, and the TDN came up to 
69, and the protein went from from 18 to 14 to 16 to 17 to 15, almost exactly what you need to feed a steer in your feedlot, that's 16% protein and good healthy uh, lush uh, grass with about 69 to 70 TDN. And the following year, I kept these two lines flat as well. I can't emphasize enough for young farmers, go out and take these samples, kind of take a, a photo or something so you remember what it looked like. Because you have learned in agriculture school, we have all learned how to make a feed plan and how to do it properly. But on the grass, it's hard to tell what they're eating. And that is where I think you, you look like Jim would look at the steers and he will look at how their tongue went around uh, a piece of grass and he will try to pull it off at the same heights. He wouldn't go deeper down or higher up. He kind of looked at what is left behind them. And therefore he could tell. And uh, that is the same thing, of course, is with graphs, is that we get cattle in, there's 650 pounds, and they just should gain two pounds a day, shouldn't they? Just straight up, straight line. But my grass go way up into uh, June, July, August, and then the production go down. So how do you manage that? That's the other trick where they actually need more feed when you hit August, September, but you have less production. And of course, we do it by longer, by straighten out where we have longer rest periods at that time of the year. To me, you needed some numbers that told you, is that good feed or is that not so good feed? And the neat part that Don Halliday had it done at the same time I did. And he always grazed two times a year, where I grazed three times. We live in a, a little farther out in the mountain, out to Rocky Mountain House, but to be a little bit different, maybe microclimate. But it's that whole thing about maturity and seed setting and all that. So we always compared, and there's nothing better than being able to compare with neighbors. That That is... Again, that sharing part and not being afraid of telling what you're doing because nobody really covered anyway. And I must say, I've had often had tours out. The gray wooded would have tours out there. And of course, I do have an ego too. You know that. So I would set it up so the, the heifers was down in the south end of the south quarter. And then there's a meadow going down through there. And then I would take them up on some of the higher land, closer to the road where I had people standing watching. And then, of course, you go down, open the gate, and show them how easy it is to make them follow you, just like little, nice little column, like soldiers behind each other. And if you move them a quarter, a mile, half a mile, they will almost string out like a perfect line coming in and out and forcing back and up to the gate, and no hassle, no cockroach behind, nobody to push. That's just satisfying, you know, with all these farmers around me, they say, oh, we have no time because I'm so busy haying all summer. I say, well, I'm just busy selling my crop off the land. So that is where, that was my little enjoyment of sometimes of, of uh, duping people like Steve, you know. <laughs>
And of course, when you custom grazing, so I didn't, I did have in my goals that I would do, um, I would have profit from marketing, but I never really, well, I did market in the way I, I sold my grass with custom cattle because I learned that the, we have a big auction here in Penoka and you, they see a somebody come in, maybe like me, and bidding on even one or two animals and the price would be tremendous because they just want to have fun to see how high she would go. It's it's a whole different environment to to buy and sell cattle than it is to to actually feed them. So it was huge that in the, also probably ninety seven, ninety eight I bought a scale that could hold about fourteen had a cattle at the time, depends size, of course. I would weigh them once a month at least. And it has two purposes. First of all, they got used to go through my corral. They got on the scale and they got out the other end and then onto a fresh pasture. I mean, this was just fun for them and no hassle and no pushing. And then, of course, if they hadn't gained enough, People say, you, know, you can't do anything about it because it's just your land and and the grass was watery this year. I said, no, I, I can go find better grass. I better walk all my pastures, see where they are at and get them on the best possible pasture. And then they will gain their two pounds if it's decent cattle. The other thing by doing that, of course, uh, they are trained so there is hardly any waste or shrink in the fall when they go on the truck because they're used to just go through the scale and then they go up in the, you know, up in the truck. That's just routine. No, no, no surprises there. And my uh, customers, I could give them almost a dead within 10 pounds what that lot of cattle would weigh at a certain date, you know, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, or whatever. And they, of course, could do their marketing. So it's very important. I I would say that's one of the best equipments I've ever bought. Ula, can I ask a quick question? Yes, When you speak about marketing, were you considering, did you want to direct market or did you want to just market, like buy and sell your own cattle? Well, marketing is marketing. So I probably, first of all, when you start doing, like I first had Copperthorn and Marshall's 200 heifers, which was breeding heifers. So they were straight on a monthly rate. But uh, later on, when I had the scale, I uh, I took cattle in on gain only, and I really got burned with some uh, cattle that were light boned and they didn't gain. So one year I had three thousand three hundred forty four dollars as income. That's little not enough to live on. <laughs> so yeah, you can. So from there on. I, I said I will have a rate of as if they gain a pound and a half a day because I said with my management, I can make that happen if you give me good cattle. And then that was a flat rate, and that way I had a monthly income, which is lovely to have a monthly income when you're a farmer. It's something you had never happened before. And then I would get a bonus if it was over that weight. 
if they gain two pounds, we will just make up for so much a pound. So it, that is marketing. But I probably had thought about, yeah, I should maybe buy it. I mean, you used to buying things and selling things, but I also realized I didn't have four hundred and four hundred thousand dollars in my back pocket, and immigrants don't have good credits in the Canada. So uh, therefore, you have to really prove yourself. You have, like back home, my I was used to my dad would have backed everything. You just said your name, and things happened. But when you are from another country, that doesn't happen. You're not established. So I also realized that that is a very, very high risk of money that has to be borrowed and has to be paid back with interest. And I'm still only earning the gain. So that is why when I started and having 400 head of yearlings come in every spring, I had enough of just settling them down and and doing that work and not worrying about money. And then I was paid monthly. That was lovely. <laughs> My kids really loved it that they got, <laughs> they, they never had had new clothing for school because there was never money in August <laughs> as long as I was, uh, you know, crop farming. Yeah, it, you just changed that. And I think what I also did, I honed in on what I could do. And I'm far more interested, I've always been far more interested in how my soil works and how how plants grow. That's my total interest. I know how to make good records. That's I pride myself in doing that. No, it's, it was a, a good choice to just hone in on one skill at a time. And then there wasn't enough years anyway to learn more. <laughs> Do that answer your question? Wow, Ula, that was awesome. Yeah. It was amazing. We do, we do have a couple more questions here. Uh, Adam's going to ask, or yeah, go, ahead. Go, go, Adam. Yeah, I've, I've got half a page here. But, uh, one of the things that I was most curious about listening to you speak about mentorship, folks like yourself that have a lot to offer, how did you realize Steve was the one worth investing all of your time in? Because that is an investment of your time. And your wealth. Now, first of all, when you have big groups coming on the farm, you don't know who comes. They, you know, I found that out when I was on the speaking circuit that very often you just speak to many heads. You don't even know who he is unless he's very obnoxious and, he, and Steve <laughs> wasn't enough to make me remember him. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I think it is more. It's not, I didn't see it as uh, investment in young people in that respect, more that I was willing to share and I was willing to answer everything that they wanted to know. And I didn't mind. Well, I don't know if you remember, Steve, because a lot of people were a little annoyed with me because I didn't provide a tractor and a wagon to drive out in the fields. We always walked. I mean, after all, I lived a farm three-quarter section right from the farm 
and they were all connected. So it was never more than a little over half a mile to walk. I mean, hey, that's not bad. But people are not used to walk. They will love, but I were not going to have these tracks in the fields because, you know, the cattle follow them and pretty soon you have a little pathway and that was a no-no. And I don't know if he were one of them that didn't like that. <laughs> no, whenever I went, uh, we walked out there and it wasn't that far. So it was, sure. I, I never heard that. So I didn't know anybody on, on the tours I was on. Nobody complained about that to me. So they didn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's going to say anything there? Yeah. Clay, uh, here in, in the room with Steve, I guess, what is some of the biggest changes you've seen in the mindset of people from when you started with holistic management to now? What are some of the, what are some of the changes you've seen in the people? Yeah. Okay. My own mindset had totally changed because I was not really brought up to take the the people in consideration that much. So I had to change my mindset. And also, the, when I took the first course of holistic management, I think I probably argued everything they said because in my mind, I and there is I learned later on being a farming for the future and stuff that out of Britain they have a, a few plots they have never put fertilizer on. They just harvest barley every year, but they do put a crop in. Or did at that time. I, I'm not sure if there's funding for that anymore. But they still had a crop for about twenty bushel. And I honestly didn't think anything. Like I was in the mindset, if you don't give it any fertilizer, it will be dead. There won't be anything. And that is not true, of course. So that mindset is definitely changed. And now we see with the regenerative farming and how you take care of your soil and how you layer it and all that stuff. Uh, and we learn, see, we didn't learn too much about the my, microbiology. I learned mostly about the chemicals you put in and the chemicals that were supposed to be there and how much sulfur and how much NPK. And I have really, really seen that. See, I should have known because I remember just probably right after the war, we always, my dad always put in the barley was underseeded with a similar plant as bird fruit trefoil. It's called snailabil. I'm, I'm quite sure it's quite similar. And it was always underseeded and we took the crop off and then the dairy cows was tethered out there because it was too far out to to reach with the electric fence. And that was grazed and plowed back in because under the war, you had no, in a country like Denmark, where we didn't have any raw products, like we didn't have fuel and we didn't have, you know, we were agricultural country without, uh, you know, mining. And that worked for them. So I should have known. And yet the old farmers, they did it. But then with the chemical companies, they came in and totally brainwashed us. Mm. They totally, like anything, like if you were a modern farmer, that's what you did. And that's why I'm so enthused that you young people have started looking at that and really gone into what, what makes things grow and how can we improve that soil. Because in the, in the plains here in North America, the, the land has gone up in dust. It's it's not and also I must say my I had friends I've gone to agriculture school with I would say there was 
they were what I would call master farmers. Uh, one of them one was uh, Jon Kulhardt, and he um, actually grew the seed for uh, Carlsberg breweries to to produce the new seeds. I can't upgrade it, hey? But I remember I've always visited every time I came back to Denmark, and I noticed that in his field, we had clay soil, sugar beets was the rotation, and canola, and then the grains, when the cattle were sold on many of these farms. I have noticed that he would show me the brand new machine he had got that would that would crush the lumps because now he had more lumps. And I never really connected it, but I remember once I took a spade along and showed him how a spade go in the soil right there in his shelter belt, but it wouldn't go into his land. So he had farmed it and farmed it in the very most modern way. And uh, it got harder and harder and harder. And I think now they have a law over there. You're not allowed to have a plowed field that's not seeded for the winter. We have a different season. We don't have the frost like you have. So that has changed. And I really enjoy that the young people now is is looking at soil health and also the... I, I like that you're putting in all three things, uh, the health of the soil, the health of the people, and the health of community, instead of taking one out and the other one don't live well, and the wives go to town and don't care. It just doesn't work if you leave one of those out, for sure. No. Um, we have Jay Byer up next, and talking about the health of the soil, this leads into this question very nicely. So, Jay, you want to go ahead? Ula, you've been grazing intensively for, for many, many years now. Um, what changes have you seen over the years uh, with this intensive grazing on, say, the soil structure, the chemistry, the biology? You've been mentioning different bits and parts, but let's go into it in a little bit of detail now as to what big changes you've seen over, over the years with your, with your soils. Okay. Of course, I haven't grazed that land myself since my son Richard, uh, bought two quarters as what he could afford in the early 20, 2003. So he bought it, and then it was no more under my management. I, I was, of course, out there snooping around a bit, but maybe moving a little cattle sometimes, but not much. So, and then the land got sold. And now all the fin no, one quarter got sold to somebody who's still grazing it, but they're not doing a good job. And the other quarter that I still has a, a kind of hand in, I have rented out to a dairy farm. All the fences are gone and it's farmed, but at least you get a lot of dairy manure. But what I have seen in the improvement of the land was I had a very sandy soil over to the east part of that quarter. And I saw it, I have seen it blowing in, that must be 1976, 78, in that time when I was still doing uh, conventional farming. And I thought I would never want to see my land blow again. And that would put into hay, and then later on, it was part of the rotation of the grazing. And that land being straight sand, not really probably having enough moisture at certain times of the year, but it would produce. And it could be part of the rotation most of the summer. Yep. Yeah. 
So I definitely see that it filled in. Actually, I should tell you a very interesting little thing that happened on that particularly five acres I'm thinking of. There was one year where I had 400 steers. It was a very, very dry uh, July. So July 20th, I phoned the owner and said, would you consider taking one load out, one 80 head or so, uh, out of the herd, and I can sort them. We have the facilities, I get weighed, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and then uh, I will be able to last, because my I always promised them to at least 1st of September, I would have last enough. He said, no way, either I take them all or I leave them all. So now what? And then I did have a little bit, I had half a bin left of a barley that from the very, very last crop I had as crop farmer. And I got a neighbor to come over and grind it into my old um, uh, feed, uh, old, old grain truck. And then I drove out in the field. The first day I went in the field ahead of time where they were going to go in because I saw all cattle would go for the grain. So I dribbled it out the back to about two pounds a steer. Of course, I didn't weigh it. I just hoped. And I overloaded two or three steers because there's seven steers that love grain and all the rest would much rather have a decent crop to eat from grass or in, in alfalfa. So the next day, I dribbled out my two pounds of grain in the field they were in where they had grazed already, and then they all ate it. So here they are. If you can visualize, they stood like a zipper with their heads in and ate that strip of grain that were dribbled out of that truck. That was fine. They were cleaned up right to the ground. They licked the last little piece up. There wasn't even a green little blade sticking up. So there was about, uh, I would say, I would say about a foot and a half that were cleaned out like that. And then I opened the gate and they went in and, and started grazing in the next pasture and I had no more overloads. And I survived. I, it slowed me down enough that I had grass growing ahead. I probably got a shower. I did that for two weeks. The very, actually that fall, I already noticed that it was much darker grass that came up right in that strip that had been bare. The following year, the grass in that little strip was two feet high where it was, no, it would have been 18 inches high. Now I won't lie. 18 inches high and besides it, it was something like 10 inches. And you could see that for three years, you could tell exactly where it is. There was no manure on. It's, uh, is that from the breathing of all the burping? <laughs> I don't know. Or what is it that did that, that you got that strip so much? So some can or somebody would have to tell me that. I've asked different people and uh, pictures of it. So that is, you could see how, now I knew what you, how you improve. You you do see it wasn't trampling because the hoofs wasn't there. It was only their heads. But you you have seen what you could improve. That was your question. How do you improve? But of course you can never really duplicate it again because it was such a small area. But it's very very interesting. And then I have the last ten years. My husband Paul. He uh, has access to 120 acres here close to town. Of course, 
it had to be greased. It was straight sand. Some of it, he could sell sand or a sand pit at some of it. And so uh, we had it growing in, and there was canola on it when he got it. And I set up. I had the pleasure. I could all manage it, set up new fences, do all my good things. And we have then had custom cattle on it, sometimes cow calves, sometimes uh, heifers, just whatever. I have seen that land from having a lot of bare spot. You could step between the plants and these sandy hills, and it's all a mat of grass now. It's it's still sand. It's still neat. A lot of moisture if you want a lot of growth. But I've also seen that there's a couple of big uh, low areas and then there's a lake in the corner. And that lake had come up, I would say now, in, in it has gone through the soil and into the lake and the lake didn't dry out last summer, for example. It is now functioning. I've seen that in these areas. So, But it's mostly, of course, yeah, I do have a, I do have record of how much we have grazed and how many animal units being grazed, and that hasn't changed a whole lot. It changed a lot with the weather, but you can see there is no more bare spots. There is much less. No, I'm much more tolerant. There's no weeds, of course. It's all plants that the animals will eat, but there's you know there's some dandelions and other things, you know. Yeah. So uh, the the big change there. It's it's really rewarding to see that water cycle working again, right? Yeah. To see that those dugouts fill from the bottom, right? I've, we've had that happen a few times when we get these big rains and, and oh yeah, it's just so rewarding. I love that. Yeah. And of course I do take a spade along still. And now the young grand, uh, grandchildren, uh, the young couple have bought it. And now I'm, I'm so dying to teach them how to do it. So I take them out with a spade. And yeah, you see the top layer, there's soil there. I just hate to see it be plowed up, but that's not, you have no more control and you have no more control. <laughs> that's true. Next up is Blue Set. And just before Blue Set talks here, we do have Greener Pastures Ranching has a YouTube channel that's just started up. You can hear about Steve taking his shovel everywhere in his What's in My Tracker video. So I'll share a link to that. But Blue Set, if you want to go ahead. Sure. Thank you, Ula, uh, for, for so many things, but for being a, a pioneer woman and inspiration and uh, also willing to share your knowledge. I've heard from multiple people that the majority of our land in North America will shift hands or transfer in the next 10 years. And so I'm wondering what advice you would give to young people that will either inherit that land or have to purchase it with all of its previous conventional management. As you had said, we've been brainwashed by uh, by big ag and chemical companies. But um, what would your advice be to those young people who will inherit these maybe faulty practices or, you know, practice previous management? Um, what would you say to them? The first thing I would say, learn. Learn. Of course, my own experience was that I worked for eight different farmers, half a year, six months each place, some of them a whole year. 
And you learn from them even when they don't maybe intentionally teach you, but just being on the place, see what's going on. And I think that's a little bit, I see in my neighborhood, I'm seeing a, one young farmer, they skipped a generation and old grandpa lived till he was 93. And then he gave the farm to his grandson that was 18, 19. There's a little bit of resentment there. And also the young guy, where was he? He was not out on eight different farms and go to Olds or what other agriculture school. Or uh, I think you can learn now by, you know, go on YouTube, I suppose. But there's so much knowledge around, but it's maybe hard to pick nowadays, but I think it's so important to get away from dad. Not because dad, it, dad could be really good, but it's, it's you learn that, there's done different things in different farms. And I think that's a good learning experience to start with, that you see that there's not one way of doing things. That, that the holistic management group that we had there in 1994 has been an absolutely lifesaver for me because I needed to share with somebody. We had a valued father-in-law was out, I think two times we had every winter we had a three-day retreat and we picked on somebody that would come and lead us and we would do things. But it was not just learning, it was also sharing that it is possible. It is possible to do or maybe, you know, there was not the criticism from the main neighbors about that it can't be done. So for me, to get to a group that you can share it's very, very important. I I don't know where you get that anymore. I mean, everybody a higher education than I am. But <laughs> I sometimes wonder wonder what they know. <laughs> so that would be my learn, learn, learn. Never always be inquisitive. Always keep your mind to learn, learn, learn. Like try to put like one time. That was from, that must have been hauled down from South. I, I gathered some of the ones from our first uh, course because I didn't know what how I should do it. And uh, they came up, they all came up. We all needed to talk. I think we were seven or eight people. And we were out, of course, in the field. That's the place to be when you talk for me. And uh, I had laid out all the posts and was going to put a fence line in and I hadn't got any further. And he went out and he was way out in the corner of my eye. I thought, what have I done wrong out there? What's he looking at? Why is he not here? And then he came back and said, why did you lay so many posts out? I said, well, I'm going to build a fence. He said, you know, if you lift the wire and you put one post in, then you follow the curve and you don't need to put a post in before 40 feet from here because of the curve of the land and the wire would be nicely three feet above the ground and no cows will jump that. And, uh, you know, these are some of the best learning experience you can have. So if you guys, there's farming, could take uh, young student farmers in, or well, you do that, Stephen, don't you? You have trainees or whatever you call Yeah, them. sometimes. Sometimes I... Free labor is not always free. It usually costs me quite a bit of damage. You know, I'm not talking about free labor. And as as a farmer, you need, yeah, you can never repair when they tip a tractor. No, the wages will never cover it, but you know that. But I always figured that it was my fault that I hadn't instructed them well enough. Oh, 
gone the first round with them or whatever it is, you know, to teach Ula, Etienne's on with us right now, and he's going to be our, our hired hand for this coming summer. So yeah. um, you, I hope you're dinner. hearing this, Etienne. Ula is telling you that it's actually Steve's fault if you make mistakes. <laughs> I wish my dad would have had that mentality. <laughs> We have to we have to instruct our young people properly, not just send them out and hope they know how, and then haul them out. When like I I always said to them, if you go with a hero and you get stuck in a corner because it had a little bigger swing than they hoped, I said, go come home and call me. Don't try to back up and try to get out of it. I said, you you'd be so stuck. I can't help you out either. Exactly. Uh, Blue set. I'll add to your question there a little bit. You basically it was, you know, what do you tell young people coming in to me? I, I think the best thing I could say to somebody is you don't have to own the land, right? There's a lot of land out there. It's going to change hands. The human resources is going to be the, the most important tool that we have, right? Being able to get a hold of the land, being able to hold, you know, keep it. I don't think we're going to have, it's not a good time. I don't think to be looking at investing in land, for agricultural purposes. I, um, I think they got to get that out of their head that they have to own everything they, they, uh, they're managing. So. Yeah, I would, I would chime in and say that the human creativity may be our greatest tool moving forward, um, that it might not be a tractor, but more our ability to see things differently than we have before. And I was thinking, Eula said that some of those people are more highly educated, but the, the highly educated people in the, coming out of the agricultural schools aren't always the best source of information and your experience is invaluable. And I so much appreciate you taking time to come and share it with us tonight. It's been amazing. So Ula, kind of going on the last question there, what would you say is one of the, with women coming in, like, like you as a woman, if you attend events now, how do you feel now compared to how you felt when you first started? I'm in shoes that some there is a lot of women in agriculture, and also that by showing up and being interested, it also shows others that we can do, you know, our part. It doesn't mean you run the whole thing, but you might, like in early times, a lot of the women ran all the books and did the taxes. So why not learn it directly? I always went to the what are they called, the accountant seminar, somewhere I found it, uh, where they were talking about, uh, good, from um, old. He would be talking to the accountant what was new in accounting for farmers, and that's what I needed to do, you know, so I would go to theirs, and of course, I probably didn't fit in there as a farmer, but I didn't care, because I got to know about taxes for farmers and was new. And then I had my my year end a different time than December 31st, so I did my taxes in October. And then I went to my accountant here in town and bought an hour time from him and said, did I get everything right? Did I put it on the right lines? And half the time I didn't have to pay. He said, you came with all the questions that I have to answer in a month from now. So I was lucky that way. Yeah, it's it's again being inquisitive and learning, learning, learning. And I think you're right. You don't have to own the land, but a renter always have to do better than a owner, I think, because that's, uh, you don't have as much capital in the back. 
That's true. Excellent. Say, Adam has a question next. Hi, Ula. I sure appreciate what you were speaking about your history and how you grew up. It it just uh, took me back to some stories from my grandparents and the way they grew up. And I I couldn't help but wonder as you talked about uh, the hard times that you went through and the struggles. Um, what have you observed? to be uh, the challenges, the biggest challenges to the younger generation growing up in your time versus the generation of today. And we might've had some overlap in those questions here, but I Mm -hmm. want to ask that to you specifically. I think the younger generation maybe is a little more spoiled. I think, uh, I so I got widowed in 1979 my uh, teacher husband was uh, killed in a highway accident. And eventually, you know, many, many months later, when I got the life insurance, I was able to pay off my farm. And that really makes a difference when you have no payments to do. But I had enough left over, I could have built a new house, for example. I'm using it as a, a, an a, example. But I chose not to build a new house because I thought, look, you have a roof over your head, your kids, uh, your kids are safe, you know, it's an old stove, it's old whatever, and, but as long as the roof is tight, you're fine, and you lived here already 10 years. So why build a new house just to have a new house? And that has stood me in good stead because I did have the capital to buy another quarter section next to me on the same uh, section, I could get the next quarter. And that was amazing. And it gives me enough land to like own the land and, and farm it. But it was that management of money and not get all your wants. It would be lovely to have a new house to brag about it. But it would just give me a roof over the head and it wouldn't give me anything else in the old house. But I wouldn't have had to take the carpet out every January when we get a thaw because it'll run in the basement again and somebody had kicked off the pipes like or whatever. I mean, there's things in the old house, but you live with it. Another thing, in, I'm treasurer of a senior center right now, and they wanted air conditioning last year. And I just said, no, we don't have money for that. Sorry, guys. Because, yeah, it would be comfortable. I said, so what? It's it's hot, you know, three days in the summer, maybe a week. We, why don't we just cancel anything going on instead of being comfortable what we want? And that's what I would think is a lot of it. It's the hardship. Have, I think there's been much more hardships in other times. Like in the 30s, my dad, when he had just bought the farm, he he said, I, I didn't see, he only had to pay wages except for the married man, but he had to pay wages to all the young fellows, you know, 1st of November and 1st of May. He said, sometimes I didn't know where the money would come from, but somehow I got it. So he didn't have it easy either. But it's it's a management of it. It's it's the hardship itself it, it is to be overcome. Did that answer your question? Yes, it did. That, that was very good. You reminded me of a quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but I think it goes something like what you said. You know, the harder the tri- the harder the conflict, the greater the triumph. And I think that <laughs> relates to people in our industry yeah. looking forward into regenerative egg. That it's a challenge no matter where you are, and good feeling of accomplishing even just the first step is amazing. So. 
Thank you. Yeah, that accomplishment of doing something that, that, that turned out, isn't that wonderful? Like calving out your first cow. <laughs> it, is. it is very much. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Richard, you're up next. Are you ready to go? Hi, Mom. I've been here listening to you. Oh, you did come on. Uh, yeah, I finally got the time change right. But um, what I wanted to say was, so when you went to those gearing up financially um, sessions with Merle Good and Olds, yeah. you left the books out and then I would read them and that's why I took ag business, I guess. Oh. And so now I'm leaving out the Joel Salatin books and Rafe and Winston are reading them and they're having a great time. So that's part of romancing the next generation. So I thought that I would just add that for you. Thanks for being on this, Mom. Oh, thank you. So it shows that you're not always aware of how you teach the next generation, you know, because if I asked him to read the books, he would say, oh, nah, it must be for no. old people. <laughs> but now when they no were time for that. <laughs> Richard, thanks for coming on. I, I just saw you there. I'm like, hey, this is going to be the toughest question of the night right here, but no problem. It's such a huge credit. Anytime, anytime we romance the next generation, as you said, Richard, it's such a huge credit to the previous generation when the next generation wants to be involved in agriculture. That's, that's awesome. And, and back to wreck and farm equipment. Uh, we worked for the neighbors, my brothers and I, because then you can leave at quitting time and you don't have to, you don't have to have the whatever the hydraulic ram on the loader broke when you were operating it, it doesn't stick with you. You can leave it behind. You go work for the neighbor and wreck their stuff. And then you come work for mom and baby it. And then everything works out better. You also get paid when you work for the neighbor. You don't get paid when you work at home. <laughs> okay. Etienne, do not take Richard's attitude on that. <laughs> oh. No, but, but that's true though. I had uh, Richard's, uh, school friends uh, working for me. I had uh, Neil Frank is on here. He was my worker one summer. And neighbor boys, I would go down to Crestomere School and see what grade nine boys I could pick up, you know, and work for me for the summer. And then my own boys and also my daughter could work for the neighbors because First of all, they learned there were other ways of doing things, but also there was much more discipline. There was not about, oh, I want to sleep in today. You know, it's rainy or something, you know. Yeah, it worked really well. To, but that was from my background. You always work for the neighbor. You don't work for your father. He just get mad at you when you don't do things right. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Do you have any other questions there, Amber? Are we... Yeah. So Ula, another question here. What would you say to people taking on their first hired hands? I think it's very important to teach them properly. If you want to a fence put up, you go out and fence with them at least for one hour and show. Don't take for granted they know how to staple a staple because maybe they never staple a staple. And or maybe they always break broke the insulators when they hammered something in. And you have a way you want it done. And therefore, you go out with them and do, do a, a few hours together with them. To, so that is what I call proper instruction. I think it's very important. And I think, too, like what Richard was talking about, if you like, like I liked farming. I, that was my life work. There's just no doubt about it. 
Yeah, so, uh, my daughter once said to me, she said uh, her husband also grew up on a farm, but he said everything was dirty. Everything my dad told me to do, I hated it. And she said, I didn't hate what you were telling me what to do. And I said, why not? She said, I think it's because I knew that if I didn't do it, you would do it just as good. It, it wasn't like it was below my dignity to clean the pig barn or whatever, you know. And I think that's when you truly love your work, that just rubs off on everybody. You're a happy person. And I have the pleasure that uh, both Richard and, and also Sigurd uh, Farm and my daughter live on the and, you know, they all like the land. And that pleases me greatly. That's such a good point, Steve. Um, when I first came and worked on the farm, that was one of the things that Steve probably did the best is I knew that if he told me to do something, it was never something that he wouldn't do himself. He would get and do absolutely every single job and he has done them a thousand times. And I completely respected him for the fact that I, I knew that there were no jobs that were beneath him. Yeah. So that's a good point. Um, the Clay, Steve, and Adam crew have another question. Yeah, but that's, I'm getting older now. So there's lots of jobs that are beneath me now. <laughs> I, just oh, come on. I just can't do them anymore. It hurts too much. Uh, yeah, Adam's got a question here. Hey, let's Adam again here. Um, so one of the questions I had for you, you talked about uh, using testing on, on your grass to find its protein level. You were talking about that bar graph. And I was just wondering... Um, did you use that initially as a way to, you know, know what kind of grass you're getting into the cattle for nutrition? And did you continue to use that through your grazing career or did you get to where you could judge the protein content um, by the manure and other signs? I mean, is that just something you work towards or did you use, you know, testing all the way through your, your grazing career? The testing was the initial part where I really got aware of that there is a way of knowing what is. Because remember, I, I probably got a top marks in how you set a dairy ration in Denmark, you know, theoretical, and how you add a little straw in order to make it absolutely perfect, not thinking about if the cow could actually eat it or not. <laughs> so I knew how to make a feed plan for a certain production. But I just had no way of knowing how you, how it looked like, you know. But I, I only, that was my initial thing that really made me aware of it. And from there on, I was just looking a lot harder. Then, uh, especially after I got to scale, it was so obvious. If you fit, didn't feed them well, they didn't gain well. And then... Remember, I so my land was like a meadow in the middle, and then two uh, kind of hills on either side, and one like I already already talked about, very sandy. So I had right from that black, I thought it was sour, uh, five point five pH, but it wasn't because I had so much sodium in it. But it was still meadow grasses, and sometimes in some weather the white clover would grow and sometimes the grasses were shaded out and in the very same spot you wouldn't know there were white clover. So it's very, very varied what they would eat. But to read 
what was good feed. I just got very good at it. And by now, when I was mentoring people, and and I remember at our very first course, he would say he could go over the land. That was Ronald Cruz said when I saw Savory for the first time, he walked over and he said, oh, I can see that has, hasn't been cattle here for two weeks. And it's a what? And he described it and he was so impressed. And that's how Ronald got roped in. And I got so, because you walk it every day, you move the cattle every day, you weigh them. you And I got so I could almost walk over the pasture and say, here, this is a, uh, 1.8 pounds again. Got to move them a little earlier. Only you know, 12 hours here. You should move them on or else. And yeah, it's amazing how good you get at that, and it is just doing it. And I love it. And maybe not quite as good at it anymore, but I still know what grass looked like. Oh, so but we can tell you're still just as passionate about it. Of course I am. They laugh at me all the time. I have all these grandchildren and they just, oh, now she's out in the field again. Yeah, why not? That's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have a passion, passion for this. Um, I met somebody in southern Alberta here a while back and they were, they, they said they were up by Busby and they were wondering where I was and like they didn't know where my farm was, but they were driving by and, and all of a sudden they saw some guy out in the middle of the pasture on his hands and knees crawling yeah. around. And they're like, I'm pretty sure we found Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was yeah. me. To answer a question, no, I haven't run test again. And I, more, yeah, more the experience and looking at and the weighing the cattle, I, I went to that rather than sending in samples. We're getting requests for you to write a book, Ula. <laughs> I'd love to, but somebody has to help me spelling. I've I've done some, uh, all my siblings is sending me nice stuff from Denmark I'm supposed to translate. It takes a lot of times when you have to look up every PH instead of an F, and it's not in the dictionary. <laughs> I, I, I hear Steve's looking for a winter project. <laughs> <laughs> I'll lend you my 13-year-old because she's my spelling nerd. When I can't spell a word, I ask her. That's what you need, yeah. <laughs> It's just, and what would you like me to write about? Really? Your stories. So this, Linda, do you want to come on and talk about how you think Ula should write? Ula, I think um, what, what I love about your story is the integration of who you are as a person, your integrity, your commitment to your community, but putting that together with really solid science, understanding the animals, understanding the land, and um, being able to talk to people in a way we can hear you, you know, that you paved the way for so many women. Um, I just, I think it would be amazing and inspiring to have a book by you. You know, I've kind of had a, a similar path in my life. I've always worked in, in stuff that men do, you know, manage just big ranch, couple big ranches and, um, running a program, a wildlife program with a bunch of men. So I kind of, I kind of have an inkling of what it might've been like for you, but you were way ahead of me. You made it easier for me to do what I do, but you know, some things are timeless. And to me, one of the things that is timeless and I don't see very often, I see it in you and I see it in Fred Provenza in particular is just this really great human who somehow 
wraps your mind around what does this mean for the land, for the people, for the community, for tying what's good in the past with the promise of the future. And, you know, if it's if it's the mechanics of writing a book, you know, they have they have programs now where you can just dictate the thing and it'll put it'll put it down in words. And then it's really easy for someone to go in and help you edit. And, you know, I work about um, work about 100 hours a week right now, so I probably better not be the one who volunteers for that. But if no one else would, and if that's what stands between you and doing it, I would like to help. I just think the book would be amazing, Ula. That is very, very flattering that you say that. But I must say, so I was interviewed a few times. I, in 1992, some of my neighbors sent in an application or whatever it was called. I became Farm Woman of the Year. That's very interesting. So I had a few uh, interviews from newspapers and other papers and stuff. And I found out when you get interviewed, you think you say something and you get a totally, it depends what they want to write. It's very scary what comes out of it. And of course, you don't have to, you don't get to to read it before you see it in the paper. And I, I would just say, I don't remember I said even anything like that. You know, that's, that's, yeah. And that's, that's why, why you, you write your own book instead yeah. of taking an interview from a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I guess we should get together sometime. <laughs> I'll put my uh, email here in the chat for you. And I would, I would love to talk with you about it. And if there's anyone else on this call who has any interest or resources in it, you know, um, sometimes if it's if it's too hard to write it down in the book, you know, you can do an oral history. You can do a we could set up a video. Ula, Ula speaks. <laughs> you have that already. You have an hour of my time right now. <laughs> I might know a videographer. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, Ula would be it would be something where if because. Amber does know or might be a videographer, you know, being able to walk out on the pasture with you and um, and and to be able to show your graphs and and really tell your story. Uh, I just think it would be really valuable. And I don't know in Canada, but in the States, there's some grants sometimes that can help with those types of things. You know, Wisdom Keeper grants. Now Amber has her first documentary project. <laughs> I do. And I have a feeling Gateway Research Organization would be happy to let me do that, too. I'm just going to say that you're not going to have trouble convincing Zandeep to let you do that. Nope. So, Ula, we'll talk later, too. But I I would love to do like like Linda is saying. It's like my environment is the field. I do actually. That I should say that, too, about um, enticing young people. And I know a family of six from our church, and I invited them. I said, you've got to come and see the cattle, because they're city people in Pinoca. I mean, it's not that much city. but And so we all came on our bike and biked way out there over the river, and, you know, and then the big thing is you take, a little six-year-old or eight-year-old's hand and just go out in the field and all the cattle come and stand around them. 
And it just is so totally amazed that they're not dangerous. I said, as long as you're quiet, you just hold my hand. And they each tried it. And it's just, I, I love doing that. It's just fun. And But they, it's such a, a, a wonder to them. It's better than being in a zoo and pet the elephant. You know? That's awesome. So our recorded time is up. Steve, oh. you want to close us up here? Yeah, thank you very much, Eula. That was amazing. Uh, just world information there and the passion that you show for this industry. And that's why you were a leader, uh, still are a leader and uh, always will be. So just absolutely love it. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being a part of our, our show here. So great. 